Well, instead of uh, continuing and completing our studies in Isaiah 55 tonight, I'm going to hold that off for uh, one week, Lord willing, and return to that passage that we read a few moments ago in 1 Corinthians 13, where I want to focus our attention primarily on those familiar verses 4 through 7, those verses which describe what love is. So let me read them again to you. Love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things." So, Father, we look at this passage and we say with the hymn writer, Henry Van Dyke, teach us how to love each other. And remind us tonight of how you have loved us in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. These verses are probably familiar uh, to most of you. You may find them hanging on a wall in your room or in your growing up household. Uh, You've perhaps heard numerous sermons on them. You've seen them written on the insides of greeting cards. If you've sat with me through marriage or premarital counseling, you've probably studied through these verses together with me, some of you. And so we know these verses, many of us, quite well. And often, speaking of marriage counseling or premarital counseling, often that's the context in which we find ourselves thinking about reading, listening to these verses. You may find yourself hearing them often at weddings as well. And they certainly apply to the relationship between a husband and a wife. But Paul isn't talking here simply about Marriage. He's speaking to Christians in general about how important love is. And so these verses apply not only to husband and wife, but to parents and children. Uh, they apply to sibling and sibling. They apply to friends. They apply to church family and how we love one another in this gathering. They apply to how you love your co-workers and your neighbors and so on. These characteristics that we read about tonight ought to be characteristic of every relationship that we have if we know the Lord, if we know what it is to be loved and we know what it is to learn to love other people, then these verses ought to matter to us in every sort of relationship throughout our lives. And so we're going to take a look at these items. It's chapter 13, and I'm going to divide these verses into 13 items, 13 ways that we can learn and know what love is. But before we do that, uh, let me just help you see how important it is that we know what love is by reminding you that love, verse 1, is greater than preaching. And then in verse 2 and verse 8, love is greater than the prophetic tongues, types of gifts, gifts of knowledge and so on. All these miraculous gifts that are fascinating and that Christians have disagreements about and that can take up our attention and that God has used in marvelous ways, love is greater than them all. Love at the end of verse 2 is greater than faith. And it is greater than philanthropy. 
in verse 3, and it is also, verse 3, greater than martyrdom as well. Even more so than hope, verse 13. Now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the great Christian virtue, coming down from God, being shed abroad in our hearts, and lived out in our relationships with other people. And so it's important that we get this, not just so that we can be familiar with a familiar passage, but so that we can really know, as the hymn writer says, how to love each other. And so I just want to walk through these 13 characteristics of love and think about what they mean and then give some few thoughts regarding them after we look at their definition. So first, love is patient. Love is patient. That probably doesn't just mean um, not having a short temper, being patient with your temper, but love is also patient in that love waits for other people to come along. Love waits for people to get it. Love waits for people to grow. Love sometimes waits for other people to love us back. Love is not always pressing other people to be what we think they ought to be. Love is patient. Love is kind as well. Kind, easy to be around. We talked about being difficult to be around on Sunday. Well, love is just the opposite of that. If you love someone, whether it's your boss or your spouse or your children or whoever it may be, you'll be kind. You'll be easy to be around. You will be gentle. You will be thoughtful about other people's needs. Love is kind. Think about this particularly men. Paul doesn't just say love is that you provide for your family and put food on the table and clothes on their back as though that gives you an out for being grumpy. Those things are love as well, but love is kind. Love is, he says, not jealous, not jealous. Now, there is a right kind of jealousy that does come with love, the kind of jealousy that says, Uh, She is my wife, and I don't share her with any other man. Or he is my husband, I don't share him with any other woman. There is a right kind of jealousy, but love is not jealous of the other person in the sense that love doesn't look at another person and say, boy, I'm just not really happy that she's succeeding and I'm not. I'm not really pleased that he has gifts that I don't have, that they have blessings that we haven't been given, and so I harbor this jealousy, this covetousness, this bitterness towards other people. That is not love. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. I lump those together. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. This is the converse of jealousy, really. You can be jealous in that You are upset when other people have blessings or gifts or successes that you don't have. Or when you're the one that has the successes and the gifts and the blessing, you can be arrogant and boastful about it, can't you? Always talking about how well you're doing and making other people feel small in the process. Even if that's not your intent, that's what you do. And it's not loving to be boastful, to be arrogant, to brag. And then we learn in verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly or in the ESV it puts it in more modern English it is not rude love is not 
pushy. Love doesn't always talk and never listen. Love is not abrupt. Even when we have to speak to someone about something difficult, we don't have to be abrupt about it. We don't have to be harsh about it. Love does not act unbecomingly. It is not rude. It does not seek its own, Paul says. In other words, it's not really love if I'm doing all of the above, if I'm being patient and kind and not jealous and and humble and, and not rude and so on. It's not really love if I'm only doing all of that just because I can get something out of you for doing it. Does that make sense? It does work that way, right? Usually when you scratch someone else's back, they're more willing to scratch yours. But love doesn't operate on that principle. Love doesn't say, I'm doing this for you in order to get something. Love does not seek its own. It is not provoked either. If you really love someone, you're not going to be always easily angered by their foibles and sins. You'll be patient in this sense that we mentioned earlier with your temper. And when you're not patient with your temper, when you are easily angered, when you are provoked consistently, it just shows that at least in those moments, you're not acting in love. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. The NIV says that it keeps no record of wrong. The ESV says it's not resentful. Love doesn't harbor up this bitterness in your heart that says, well, I remember what so-and-so did, and I'm always going to think about that when I see their face. Or I'm going to bring that out if they ever do it again, and I'm going to remind them of the thing that happened before. That's not how love acts. Love keeps no record of wrong, as the NIV puts it. Love is not resentful, ESV. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It's not always jotting down things in a mental list, or sometimes people jot them down actually in a physical notebook so that they can keep a record of all the times when someone has failed them. That is not love that acts in that way. Love, verse 6, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Two people who really love each other are not going to be constantly egging one another on in their sin. There are lots of relationships that do that, aren't there? And the people seem to have a camaraderie and they seem to love each other, but their relationships are such that they come together in order to sin together. That's not love, no matter how much affection there may be between the two people. If two people come together and they rejoice in unrighteousness, they urge one another on to sin rather than to truth, it's not true biblical Love. And incidentally, this refutes the idea that says, you know, if you're going to rebuke my sin, you're being unloving. No, it's the very opposite. The unloving thing would be to rejoice in your sin or to ignore your sin. I rejoice if I love you in the truth, and therefore I speak the truth to you in love about your sin. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Or if you look at, if you have the NASB and you look at the footnote, uh, it says that it could be translated, love covers all things. And that seems to be the way the great 
commentator of old Matthew Henry took it. He takes this clause and he reminds us of 1 Peter 4, 8, where Peter writes, Love covers a multitude of sins. And perhaps that's what Paul is saying here. Love covers all things. Love covers a multitude of sins. In fact, let me just read you what Henry says about love covering a multitude of sins. It's quite helpful and beautiful. It, meaning love, will draw a veil over sins as far as it can consistently, as far as it can consistently with duty. Love is not for blazing nor publishing the faults of a brother till duty manifestly demands it. Necessity only can extort this from the charitable mind. Though such a man be free to tell his brother his faults in private, he is very unwilling to expose him by making them public. Thus we do by our own faults, and thus charity would teach us to do by the faults of others. Not publish them to their shame and reproach, but cover them from public notice as long as we can, and be faithful to God and to others. Love covers all things. Love bears all things. Love doesn't make sins public, but rather just takes them and absorbs them and talks to God and to the sinner about it unless otherwise is necessary. Love also believes all things. Love, in other words, has a positive outlook. Love hopes for the best. Love believes the best about people. Love gives people the benefit of the doubt. Love is not suspicious. If you love someone, you're not always looking for a way that they might be trying to... uh, fail you, they might be trying to trick you, they might be trying to harass you, they might be actually doing something with a sinister motive. If you really love them, you won't be suspicious like that. Now, of course, some people are doing those things, and sometimes we know that they're doing those things, but the point is, in a a relationship of mutual love, that's not our first instinct, is to be suspicious, but rather to believe the best, to give them the benefit of the doubt. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love is optimistic, in other words. Not pie in the sky so as to think that this person whom I love will never ever hurt me or never ever sin, but love hopes all things because we hope in God and we believe what God can do by the power of his spirit, by the power of his word in these relationships that we're in, whether they be marriages or families or friendships or church family or whatever. We believe that God can work. And we pray like we believe that God can work. And we treat others like we believe that God can work. We hope all things. We hope for the best. And then love endures all things. This is quite straightforward, isn't it? If you love someone, you won't quit on them. You won't just walk out on them. Sometimes relationships become difficult. Sometimes the nature of relationships changes. But if you love someone, you never give up praying. You never quit on them altogether. You hope, you believe, and you trust God, and you endure. Love endures all things. Now, if you've been with me uh, in counseling in one of these settings where I've walked you through these verses, then you have done the exercise that I'm about to encourage you to do, which is to do two things. I won't have you write them down like I would do in a counseling session, but just to think about them. Number one, I want you to think about um, 
how it is that some person, some person that you have a, a relationship of love, a strong friendship, uh, a family bond, a marriage bond with, how is it that that person does one or two of these things really well? And to help you think, if you're married, you might immediately think of your spouse. If you're not married, let's just say this. Whoever it was that you were thinking of while I was going through these characteristics and saying, boy, I wish so-and-so would hear that one. Well, think about so-and-so and say, well, what does so-and-so do really well on this list? How have I benefited from so-and-so being patient with me or kind with me or what have you? So just take a minute and think about that. And uh, I'll actually give you 30 or 60 seconds to do that. Just think about that person and what they do well. If you have one or two things in mind, whatever they are, let me encourage you, whether that person is here in the room tonight or uh, in another country or state or city, that you remember what you just saw in this text and that you thank them for it and that you encourage them in it and that you thank the Lord that someone has loved you with a biblical kind of love. So that's one thing. I ask couples that are meeting together to think about their spouse and what the other person's doing well. But then I ask them to turn this passage like a mirror on themselves, and I'm going to ask you to do that now. Turn this passage like a mirror on yourself, and don't pat yourself on the back, though I'm sure you're doing some of these things well, but I want to encourage you when you think about yourself to think about what is it in this description of love, where is it that I struggle most? If I were to look at this list and think, boy, in the lives of the people that I'm the closest with, how is it that I fail the most? Take one or two of those things, and again, I'll give you a little bit of time just to think about it as you read it through. Hopefully this is easy for you to see because God is already teaching you and convicting you and growing you in some areas. But wherever it is that you find yourself struggling the most, I want to encourage you to pray about it. And I want to encourage you to repent. And I want to encourage you to seek the forgiveness of that person or persons whom you have failed by not loving them in these ways. So, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things.
Now let's just do another exercise with these 13 items, and that is to look at them again and ask, isn't this how Christ loves us? Paul is speaking, of course, mainly about how we are to love one another, but when we think about love, isn't Christ the example of all of these virtues? Love is patient. Here is Jesus for three years with his bumbling disciples And he doesn't give up on them. He's patient. And he's patient with you, isn't he? With all of your bumbling and some of you who have never yet come to trust him, even though you've been invited time after time, how long the Father waits for us, how reasonable his offer that he delay 2,000 years in mercy toward you and I, the scoffers. He is patient. Love is kind. Love is kind. I was reading... Uh, a, a letter by a pastor to his congregation this week, William Still, and he reminded his people as they sought to speak the word of God with others, he reminded his people of the example of Jesus with the woman at the well and the woman caught in adultery and Zacchaeus and all these sorts of ne'er-do-wells, these people that we would look at and go, my goodness, what a problem this person is. They're going to need a lot of help, a lot of counseling. And Jesus bumps up against these people in his ministry, and he is not disgusted with them, and he is not harsh with him, and he doesn't pass by on the other side of the road. He is kind to them, everyone. And his kindness is what brings them to repentance. And he's kind to you, isn't he? If we could, again, as we've said before and as others have said Besides myself, if we could each one of us have our sins just placarded on the screen tonight, we would be exactly the sort of people that we would think, oh, that's the kind of person that I maybe need to just stay back from. Steer a little bit clear of her. Don't, don't get closer than arm's length to him. He's got some real issues. And yet Jesus doesn't stay anything like arm's length away from us. He is kind to us. And then we read that love is not jealous. We said there's a a right way to be jealous, and Jesus is jealous for us in that regard, without doubt. But there's a wrong way to be jealous, and that is to always be frustrated about someone else's success or secretly bitter or covetousness, covetous toward them. But think about Jesus. Jesus comes and he, he ministers And he dies and he rises from the dead and he has some followers when he ascends into heaven. But by far, the church's greatest success was after he left the scene. Does that ever strike you as amazing? Remember how he said, we'll do greater things than he did. Doesn't mean uh, in one sense that we'll be greater than him, but he has left the great success to us. The gospel has spread to the ends of the earth after he left. He is not jealous of pushing us to the front and letting us succeed and us do these great works. And then we find that love does not brag and is not arrogant. And we think of Jesus, very God of very God, laying in a manger, growing up in a carpenter shop, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, hanging up to die on a cross. Moses is called in the Old Testament the most humble man. 
that there ever was. But Jesus far outstrips him in that category as in every other, does he not? Love, the love of Christ, does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It's not rude as we saw in the ESV. And look at, look at Jesus again. Look at him between the thieves on the cross. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While they were being rude to him, while they were acting unbecomingly to him, he spoke nothing, and then he spoke kindness to the one who repented. And look at him again in your life. As you, through your sin, revile him and forget about him and speak in ways that dishonor him and act in ways that drag him through the mud and he doesn't revile you, he comes to you again and again in his word and speaks kindness to you. Love does not seek its own. Now there is a way in which, of course, Jesus does seek his own. Everything that God does, Father, Son, and Spirit, is for the glory of the one true God. But notice that the way that the one true God brings himself glory is by bringing us the most possible good. God gets glory by forgiving your sins and by adopting you into his family, and by making you into the image of Jesus, which is far better for you than leaving you like himself, and by grant, like yourself, and by granting you life eternal. He is constantly doing you good. And he came to the earth and went through all that he went through, all that was difficult, all that was wrong, all that was painful, all that was lonely, in order to do you good. Love does not seek its own. And love is not provoked. And Jesus is certainly not easily angered, is he? He's slow to anger. Peter three times denies Jesus. And three times after his resurrection, Jesus gives Peter opportunity to be restored. And restored. And restored. Not provoked. He doesn't cast Peter to the side. He restores him. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. And that's, that's the whole message of the cross, isn't it? Jesus, instead of taking your sins and writing them on your heart so that he can be bitter about them and bring them up later... He takes your sins and puts them on his own head and on his own back and on his own record and he dies for them so that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth. And that is Jesus too, isn't it? He loves us. He forgives us in spite of our unrighteousness. He washes our unrighteousness away. But he also says to us, sin no more. And some of us need to hear that word of love tonight. Jesus does not rejoice in your sin, though he forgives it. Sin no more. Love bears all things. Love covers a multitude of sins. And Jesus went all the way from heaven to earth 
from outside of time to inside of time to a manger to a cross to cover your multitude of sins and to cover mine. Love believes all things. It thinks the best. It's not suspicious. Now, here's something that is a little bit challenging. Jesus doesn't have to think the best about us. Indeed, there's a sense in which he can't think the best the same way that we think the best. We think the best about someone when we don't really know, but we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is omniscient, right? Jesus knows everything, and so he doesn't need to give you the benefit of the doubt. He already knows what's in your heart, and what he knows is in your heart is not usually good. And yet, even then, he's not suspicious of you. He's not sitting in heaven at the Father's right hand waiting for you to just mess it up. No, He's there interceding for you. He knows the good about you. He knows the bad about you. And He loves you anyway. And love hopes all things. Hopes all things. If you belong to Jesus, if you are His child by repentance and faith, He is not down on you. You may sometimes disappoint him, grieve him, yes, but his attitude towards you is not one of great disappointment and wringing of his hands that you're actually part of his family and he doesn't know what he's going to do with you. No. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. That's the way Jesus speaks of his people. He hopes all things, and he makes it sure that we have hope ourselves because he has plans for us. And love endures all things, even the nails of the cross that your sins and mine drove into his hands and feet. He endured all these things that our sins have brought upon him, and he continues to endure our sins because he is love. This is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is what love is personified in the person of Jesus. And so I bring Jesus to you tonight. I give Jesus to you tonight. I offer Jesus to you tonight as an example of all of these things, as an example of how you and I ought to love one another. But I bring him to you tonight. I give him to you tonight. I offer him to you tonight also as a Savior. For those who listen to verses 4 through 7, who read them inside the greeting card, who sit through the marriage counseling or the wedding service and say, I stink. I fail at every single point. Well, I offer you one tonight who loves you anyway and who died for you. More than anything else, remember tonight the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you.